All right. Uh, remember, our, our fall series, excuse me, is we're calling Rules for Life the Way We Best Operate. It is a deconstruction of New York Times best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, written by uh, probably the most influential psychologist in the Western world today, a guy named Dr. Jordan Peterson. And tonight's rule, which is the fifth in our study, is rule five, don't let kids do anything that makes you dislike them, interestingly enough. What does that mean? Uh, it's a rule on parenting. So let's take a look. We're going to teach from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, and here the writer of the Hebrews says this, endure hardship as discipline, because God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They, our, our human fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. Our talking points for tonight are as follows. We're going to look at Peterson's advice, uh, really a critique of modern parenting. So the first step is flaws in modern parenting. The second part from our text, our biblical text, is the love of a perfect parent. And finally, the greater scriptural principle, the love of a brave brother. Flaws in modern parenting, the love of a perfect parent, and the love of a brave brother. First of all, flaws in modern parenting. It's, you know, every time I stand in front of people and talk about parenting, I feel like uh, i got to get addressed kind of the elephant in the room to begin with. Uh, I don't have any kids, and so the obvious question would be, why on earth would we listen to what this guy has to say about parenting? That's a valid question. I'm glad you asked. Uh, I've thought about it for many years and prayed about it a decent amount, and there's two things that keep coming to mind for me. First of all, so far as I can tell, a lot of the parenting advice that I hear out there tends to be fairly anecdotal. In other words, in raising my kids, here's what happened in our home, and so maybe that's what's going on in your home. But if kids are really as different as their fingerprints are, uh, a lot of advice and a lot of what works is contextual. And so what's to say that what happened and what works in your home for your kid is going to work in somebody else's home? So it's so much of it is anecdotal, and I don't think that's always helpful. Uh, more important, number two, what that means I'm totally and utterly dependent on is God's inspired word about parenting, as well as quality research out there about parenting. And research, the interesting thing about research is it's thousands of individual anecdotes pushed together in order to find some level of universal truths out of that. So I promise tonight I will not uh, journey into my personal opinions. We'll stick to what God's word has to say. We'll stick to what the best research out there seems to say. By the way, one other point that's not mistaken on me is that the vast majority of parenting instruction in the Bible comes from two individuals, Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And between them, they have a sum total of two kids, okay? So if their advice there and their teaching is inspired and helpful, uh, I think we can gain something here tonight, okay? So the rule five, don't let kids do anything that makes you dislike them. Um, 
you know, that sounds maybe a little bit crass. I think it's worth mentioning that Dr. Peterson actually spent some of his early years working as a psychologist in daycares. And you can tell when, if you read his writing, you can tell he really loves kids a lot and he has very strong opinions about formative behavioral training and conditioning. And I would describe his critique of modern, modern parenting in two categories. One, it's a critique of parents' perceptions of the nature of their kid. And two, it would be a critique of parents who desire too badly to not be perceived as bad parents. Okay, so a misunderstanding of the nature of humanity, including kids' humanity, and a misunderstanding of maybe desiring to not be perceived as bad parents. We've got to take a moment on each of those. First of all, not understanding the true nature of kids. Now, we mentioned this a little while back. We were talking about sort of the framers of Western democracy and the types of individuals who are often quoted. And Peterson would point to an individual like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who modern Western people and perception of personhood, a lot of it comes from his writing. Well, Rousseau was an individual who said that human beings were basically good and that it's institutions that are actually corrupt and institutions that cause the problems in society. Now, bear in mind, this is an individual who actually abandoned five of his own children to orphanages. So I'm not sure we should take what we believe about parenting or personhood from somebody with that kind of track record necessarily. Uh, rather, the, the, the biblical idea is what? The biblical idea is very clearly articulated throughout the Bible, but maybe especially in Psalm 51, where King David says, surely I was a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In other words, theologians for years have referred to this as the doctrine of original sin or inborn sin, right? And Peterson would say, well, yeah, not only is that biblical, and he's not even a Christian, what he would say is it's easily observable. Anybody who has ever watched a little child either smack their mom or watch a little kid take a toy and crack it over the head of, you know, their playmate in class or whatever, uh, it's very easily observable that that nature is inside. So when people tilt their heads and they look disapprovingly and say, well, why would you do such a thing? Peterson would say, what are you talking about? It's obvious. They want to dominate their mom. They want to dominate their friend. They want to see how far they can go. They want to press the boundaries of life. The question of why would you do such a thing is a silly question. Violence is obvious. Violence is easy. Just look at nature. Nature is violent unapologetically. It's peace that we would say that's hard. Sharing is a learned inculcated behavior. Uh, why, why, do people, why are people guilty of violence? No, 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 that's the wrong psychological question. Why does anybody ever carry out peace? That's the right question. And in fact, Peterson would say that in general, people get these psychological questions turned backwards in life. Why on earth does anybody ever do drugs? Pfft, wrong, wrong question. Why are we not all doing drugs constantly all the time if they help us feel better? That's the right question. That's the interesting psychological question. Uh, why do people get so anxious about stuff? Wrong question. Silly question. Why, when you understand mortality, when you understand the countless millions of uh, things that can threaten our life and jeopardize our living conditions, why aren't we terrified constantly? That is a much more important psychological question. And so it comes down to the issue of personhood. What do you think the basic nature of humans, including human children, 
is. And again, what we're saying here tonight is by observing scripture and observing children's behavior, it seems fairly obvious that children do have an inborn sin nature. In fact, did you know that the most violent category of human beings alive is two-year-olds? We don't realize it because they're not very fast, they're not very strong, and they're not capable of a whole lot of danger, uh, a whole lot of harm. But actually, the people group that asserts their will through aggression and force more than any other people group alive is, in fact, two-year-olds. Why? Because they have an inborn sin nature. So we have to be honest about that, and a lot of modern people aren't. Secondly, uh, the whole issue of parents who are afraid of being perceived as bad parents. Peterson would trace this actually back to, I'm just going to read it here, what he writes. Uh, He would trace it back to the adolescent ethos of the 1960s, a decade whose excesses led to a general denigration of adulthood, meaning we don't want to grow old or, or disdain older individuals. Number two, a disbelief in competent authority, in other words, a widespread cynicism about institutions. And three, an inability to distinguish between the chaos of immaturity and responsible freedom. In other words, defining freedom only in terms of absence of restrictions. And he would actually suggest, you know, parents are very often paralyzed by the fear that their kids will not like them or perhaps even love them. And so often they're willing to sacrifice a necessary level of respect in order to potentially, in the moment, be liked by their kids. And Peterson would say, that's actually terribly selfish. You know why? Because your child has the opportunity to make many, many friends throughout the course of their life. How many parents do they ever get the opportunity to have? Two at most, and if that. And therefore, your kid needs you to be a parent, primarily, not a friend. And it's a very different kind of aim. Um, In other words, every parent needs to learn, he uses the term, how to be the arbiter of society for your kids. And what he means by that is to learn, essentially, how to behave so that other people will be able to interact with them in meaningful and productive kinds of ways. And that's your primary aim as a parent, is, is to arbitrate them and socialize them that way. Very closely related to this, this fear of being a bad parent, he would also talk about overprotective parenting. And Peterson's a master of teasing out themes from famous narratives. And in this section, he talks about Sleeping Beauty, which it's worth jumping into here just because I think it's a helpful illustration. Many of you, if you haven't seen it, uh, you at least have heard of it. The basic plot line of it is, is what? You have two parents, a king and a queen, who they are, have born to them a daughter, Aurora, and they invite everybody in the kingdom to the daughter's christening. Everybody except who? Maleficent. Why is her name Maleficent? Because it means she is the embodiment of evil. In other words, symbolically, what they're doing is they're inviting everything into their life except evil. They don't want any uh, danger or evil into their child's life. Maleficent, scorned by this, casts a spell on the child. Parents hear about it, and they nonetheless, again, try to, throughout her development, take away all the possible dangers in her life. So they remove, like, all the spinning looms from the kingdom. Spinning looms are emblematic of, like, chaos and wildness in life. And still, even so, despite their parents' best efforts, what happens to Aurora? Well, she grows up, and she doesn't grow up completely free from all harm. Rather, because they've intentionally kept her from all harm, she grows up naive, immature, and weak. 
Essentially, Aurora never learns to appreciate the complexity and hardships of life, so she chooses unconsciousness over the terrors of adult life. And something very existentially similar happens to kids who get overprotected by their parents. Uh, why? When they eventually grow up and get released into a harsh world, when they face the lows of life, because they have no self-defense mechanisms against a fallen sinful world, they become almost traumatized by even a small amount of hardship in life. And then at that point, they desire the bliss of uh, escapist unconsciousness. And this is the explanation of how do you get to the point where kids who are even raised in relatively good homes seemingly develop drug addictions and alcohol addictions and sex addictions and all sorts of other stuff like that. Well, yeah, very clearly. So, uh, again, the assessment then, the critique of modern parenting is a failure to recognize human nature, original sin, the failure to recognize how afraid many of us are of being perceived as bad parents and overcompensating through overprotective parenting. And so what Peterson would generally speaking encourage then for parents is three basic focuses. Uh, attention for your kids, structure for your kids, and socialization for your kids. Attention, structure, socialization. And he would actually go so far as to say, when it comes to like socialization, uh, if a child, he says the research out there is incredibly clear, if a child does not learn how to develop friends, how to share, how to become socialized by four years old, the prospects for them of being able to make meaningful relationships and friends in life moving forward is very difficult statistically. Say, okay, that's a lot of warnings. Does he have any just specific advice? Yes, we'll just call him five, Peterson's five principles of parenting, okay? Number one, he says limit the rules. In other words, kids need rules, but they don't need tons and tons and tons and thousands of rules. They need some very basal, basic, simple rules. Uh, don't hurt other people. Don't bite. Don't kick. Don't bully. Uh, learn how to express gratitude when people show kindness to you. Um, learn in, in general uh, how to share. That's an important life skill. For that matter, learn how to respect your authorities, even and maybe especially when you don't necessarily agree with those authorities. Learn how to nonetheless respect them and navigate that system. So that's the first principle. The second principle is minimum force necessary to enforce those rules. Minimum force necessary. Very important life lesson. What does that mean? It's very easy to illustrate. If you were doing a house project, you know, some kind of DIY landscaping or flooring or uh, drywalling or something like that, what tools would you use? What if you didn't know what tools to use? Where would you start? Go to the opposite, go to the extremes. Maybe I should use a crane. Maybe I should use a tweezers. Neither one of those is going to help you get your project done, but you know where you should start? Tweezers. Why? Because you start with the crane and you're going to destroy your house. So you start with the minimum force necessary in life. And when you realize that a tweezers isn't going to do it, then maybe you increase the force and increase the intensity, and then you do your project with a shovel. And that's appropriate. And the exact same thing is true when it comes to parenting. How do you know? Because every kid is a little bit different. Some kids, you look at them funny and they cry. Some kids, you, you can yell pretty severely and they won't be affected at all, right? How do you know? You start with minimal force and you work up to find the necessary force, necess the necessary force to bring about the desired results, okay? Third principle, parent and pair is when possible. This isn't always possible. Thank God these aren't 
uh, rules and commands. These are principles. But it's nonetheless worth stating, you know, because it's important to aim at ideals. Uh, in a modern world, sometimes we have an idea that every possible method is equally valid in life in general, and that's just not true, in, either from a scriptural standpoint or an evolutionary biology standpoint. From both perspectives, if it requires two adults to, if it requires two adults to create a child, it stands to reason that it would require two adults, or at least a child would benefit from having two adults rear the child. This, by the way, was, I think, uh, neglected or missed even in the middle of the 20th century where for a while in American society there was a perception that a, a father goes out and he makes a wage and he puts food on the table and a mother rears the ch children. No. That is not, this is a two, if, if possible and when possible, this is a two-person hands-on kind of thing. Again, that's not always possible and by God's grace he gets us through it. But nonetheless, we aim at the ideal. Number four, parents must recognize their own capacity for evil. I don't know a single set of parents who wants to hurt their kids. And yet, if you are naive about your own personal pride or selfishness, I guarantee a dependent creature is going to suffer as a result of that. Lastly, serve as a proxy for the world. This is, this is I thought, maybe his strongest point in the whole chapter, so I'm just going to read it directly to you. Uh, he says... Parents have a duty to act as proxies for the real world. Merciful proxies and caring proxies, but proxies nonetheless. This obligation, this obligation supersedes any responsibility to even ensure happiness, to foster creativity, or to boost self-esteem. It is the primary duty of parents to make their children socially desirable. I've never heard a parent say that before. I've never heard even a psychologist say that before, but I want to challenge you to think about it practically. That will provide the child, socially desirable, will provide the child with opportunity, self-regard, and security. It's, it's more important than fostering individual identity, and that holy grail can only be pursued in any case after a high degree of social sophistication has been established. All right, let's move on to point two the love of a perfect parent. And actually, I spent as much time as I did on that first point because I would say that by and large, Hebrews 12, in an amazing way, agrees with a lot of that advice. But it's worth doing a little bit of background on this. Hebrews, if you don't know, we don't know exactly who the writer is in the New Testament, um, but we do know exactly who it was written to. It seems to be a group of Jewish Christians who have converted to the Christian faith who are now experiencing a great deal of social isolation because of their Christian faith. So they've been rejected by the pagan community. They've also been rejected by their former network and community of extended Jewish friends and family. And they're going through so much hardship that they're wondering, is it worth it? Uh, after all I've sacrificed, is it worth it for me to stay a Christian after all this? And we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take the truth of this text, but look at it a little bit in the reverse way as the author is doing it. The author is explaining that the Hebrews' lives are filled with hardship right now. And yet, he says, that if you lived in a household with a loving father, isn't it assumed that that loving father would discipline you? Isn't it assumed that that loving father would allow some hardship into your life, maybe even bring, create hardship in your life for the purpose of correcting you, training you, and causing you to mature to the point that you can be released out into the real world? 
every adult I know with any level of maturity can look back at their childhood and even though they might not always agree with the parenting methodology of their parents, they can nonetheless acknowledge the fact that, yes, I needed some loving parental discipline in order to mature and develop into adult status here today. Now, if that's true, and if it's also true that you and I are God's children, and this universe is essentially God's jurisdiction, God's house, then doesn't it also stand to reason? Shouldn't we anticipate that God would allow into our lives things that we don't like, things that we don't understand, things that someday we're going to look back on and say, yeah, even though I didn't like that in the moment, I probably needed exactly that in order to mature into an adult believer. In other words, um, look at it like this. If it's true that we are children to God, what is the equivalent for us in our lives right now of bedtimes and no cookies before dinner and grounding or spanking or timeouts or uh, punishments with chores of cleaning your room? What is the equivalent? I don't know always what it is, but I can guarantee we probably are not yet mature enough to understand our Heavenly Father's methodology in discipling and disciplining us here today, right? So the text seems to be suggesting that we know the necessity of a loving father's discipline so we can rightfully interpret the hardship that we inevitably experience in life as evidence of a loving father. But what happens if we sort of re reverse engineer that truth? In other words, it means, it means if you're a loving parent, what necessarily is going to happen in your life and your parenting relationship with your child? You're going to have to, according to this text, you're going to have to discipline your kid. Uh, you have to recognize their human nature. Uh, you have to recognize your own personal fears, whether they are obvious or latent. About You know, every one of us has a fear about being a bad person. But if you're a parent, you're naturally going to have a fear about being a bad parent at some point in time along the way. And therefore, the aim of your parenting is not to be liked, and it's not to even make your child's life as happy as possible. I know we talk that way a lot of times. The aim of your parenting is what? It's to be faithful to God and prepare and discipline your child to develop in such a way that they'll grow up in life and be able to live as adults. That means that we seek for our child attention, structure, and socialization, we neither abandon our responsibilities like Rousseau did, nor do we try to create a bubble-wrapped paradise of a reality for our kids like the king and the queen did for Aurora. Instead, what we do is we try to create and foster an environment in which we instruct our kids how to navigate a fallen world by leveraging their faith in a sovereign God as they trust their loving, sacrificial Savior. It works, by the way, exactly like uh, muscle development in a gym, right? You know how muscles grow and develop in a gym? So it only comes through resistance. There's no way to grow muscle apart from adding resistance. Uh, there's no way for faith to grow unless it's tested. There's no way for commitment in life to grow unless it's threatened. There's no way for patience in life to grow unless it's taxed. There's no way for compassion 
to grow unless it's challenged. It's no way for your courage to ever grow unless you actually face your fears. For your faith to develop, it requires resistance. It's just like, so if you go to the gym, if you, you go to the gym and you do, you know what it's like to go to the gym and do 200 push-ups, right? Me neither. I'm guessing what it feels like, though, is after you do all that, your arms feel heavy and limp and just powerless. And they're so, they feel so weak. Because at that moment, are your arms weak? That's a tough question. They feel extraordinarily weak. But actually, in that very moment, they're becoming stronger. It's like, when you're weak, then you become strong, right? The exact same thing is true when it comes to parenting, the exact same thing is true when it comes to development, especially development of the faith. When I am weak, then that's when God makes me my strongest because I lean on him. I'm dependent on him. By the way, I think it's worth mentioning at this point, because I don't mention it all that often, but I think it's, I should. Uh, my own personal philosophy, and I don't want to call it just a philosophy, but it's sharing about ministry here at St. Marcus. Uh, one of the immediate benefits that I see attached to our school here at St. Marcus is this. I know that a lot of us who are here probably grew up in uh, Christian schools, Lutheran schools, parochial schools of some sort, and then you're looking at your school growing up and you're comparing it to St. Marcus and you're thinking, it's a little bit different from what I grew up with. And some of you are like, thank goodness it's different from what I grew up with because, you know, my experience wasn't great. And others of you are like, well, I had a really positive experience growing up. And do I want my child to have a different experience? And so I, having been here for five years now, I've had a lot of these conversations with parents along the way. And I've heard some recurring themes, you know, uh, the theme of, okay, do I want my child to have that structured of an educational environment? Uh, how okay am I with the idea of my child being a minority in their classroom? Um, what if my child might have a classmate and they're not a Christian or their family is not a Christian, even though the teachers and the administrators and the support staff are all faithful Christians? So in other words, is the school going to be a bubble-wrapped kingdom for a child to grow up in? No, but as I already said, I don't think developmentally that's what you ideally want for your kid anyways. I think what I can say about it confidently is it is a safe environment where kids can learn how to navigate society that is rapidly multiplying in diversity of thought and culture under the authority of faithful Christians doing so while developing a biblical worldview. Is it the only option? No, I'm not saying that. I'd never stop me whenever I assert something is the only possible way when God's word hasn't said it's the only possible way. You could send your kid to a different Christian school. You could send your kid to the public school system. You could homeschool. There's all sorts of great options. But it's worth me, I think, saying at this point, it's not hard for me to see how it is a potentially wise option for your family. Okay? Which brings me to my final point. The love of a brave brother. So... Wise parenting advice is good and it's godly, but uh, it needs to be overtly said because I think sometimes we almost function like this, like this. You are not saved by being good and godly parents, and your kids are not saved by you being good and godly and gracious parents either, right? They're blessed by it, but this is a very important distinction. They're not saved by it. Uh, therefore, Peterson, for that matter, is wrong. He's wrong in saying that socialization is the most important thing that you can do for your kids. No, it's not. 
It's a good thing. It's a very important thing. The most important thing that you can do for your kid as a parent is introduce them to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Logically speaking, even if you get them all sorts of socialized by the age of four and everything else, that might bless them for 70 or 80 years. Great. That is a good thing. But if you introduce them to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they will be blessed perfectly and for all eternity. So that's your aim. We always want to aim in the right spot. And yet, this is the right moment, I think. You know, whenever we're talking about parenting like this, it's a good moment to recognize God right now is asking you to forgive your own parents for the fact that they weren't everything that they were designed to be. Every single one of us has a little bit of pathology in our lives. We have an unhealthy relationship with food or drinks or money or career or some other substance. We maybe have an unhealthy desire for approval from men or women in our lives. Maybe not entirely, but to some extent because of some kind of perhaps failed parenting effort. Every household I've ever met has some level of malpractice inside of it. And you have to acknowledge that. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled with as adults that just won't even think to acknowledge how some of their current pathology is related to uh, an experience growing up. So, okay, you have to acknowledge that to move forward. Once you do acknowledge it, then the big question is, well, what do I do? Okay, do I, do I confront my parents and ask for forgiveness on certain things? Maybe. I don't know, though. Will that be productive? Are they still even around that you could ever do something like that? Will it glorify God? I don't know. Here's what I know you can't do. You, you can't dismiss their sins as though they weren't less than perfect. You can't hold on to your sin, their sins because their sins will control you for the rest of your life. Guess what you have to do? You have to forgive them for their sins as God in Christ has forgiven you. probably the right time then, as we're talking about God forgiving you, to mention uh, this whole concept of forgiving yourself too. Because a lot of us are absolutely terrified that we're going to mess our kids' life up. And, you know, it can get you know, a little crazy at, at times. Every, everything that you do, if you get too focused on it, every sandwich that you prepare for a child becomes an online deep dive investigating the purity of certain ingredients. And uh, every play date that your kid has become like an FBI background check on your classmates to make sure the family's okay. And, you know, there's a threshold at which point you realize, am I God's representative or am I God in my child's life? I'm God's representative trying to do a faithful job, but I can't control and do all things. And I have to realize God actually loves my child even more than I love my child. I actually honor him for that in my baptism when I bring my child to his or her baptism. What that means then is you're just managing the upbringing of God's child in your life. And for that matter, God knew that you weren't perfect when he gave you that child, which is exactly why he sent his own firstborn son into the world to pay for every single one of your sins, including all of your parenting mistakes including your parents' parenting mistakes, including your kids' eventual parenting mistakes too. If your Heavenly Father has already paid for your forgiveness through your perfect, 
loving, brave brother Jesus, if he's already forgiven you, then you have to forgive yourself for any mistakes that you make as well. Brings me to the final point. You know, Hebrews is a book that often looks back at God's people in the past and how they pointed forward, but sometimes it's helpful to look back and Particularly here on the topic of parenting, I want to look back to a character in Genesis who Genesis culminates in. His name is Joseph. And uh, you've probably heard the story of Joseph in Genesis, but I want, to look, want you to look at it through the lens of parenting for just a second because Joseph, interestingly enough, uh, he loses his mom at a very early age. Joseph is only about seven years old when his mom uh, dies while giving birth to his brother Benjamin. So he's without a mom at seven. And his dad sort of emotionally and psychologically snaps at that moment, and he becomes suffocatingly overprotective of Joseph, and he spoils him. He spoils him as a brat so that he's turning into an adolescent monster. And because of that, all his brothers absolutely hate him, and they, would, they want to kill him, but instead of that, they're going to make some money off of him. They sell him to some Egyptian slave traders. And for the next 20 years of his life, every time things are looking up, they immediately take a nosedive, and yet through all of the chaotic circumstances, God has gifted Joseph with this ability to interpret dreams. And actually, through some additional weird circumstances, he, addition, he interprets a dream for the Pharaoh. He gets elevated to the position of second in command of all of Egypt. And there's a famine in the land so that his brothers that he thought were long gone and they thought he was long gone actually come to Egypt and he gets reconciled with them. But it's actually at that moment that they think, well, he's still maybe going to seek vengeance upon us. And you know what Joseph says at that moment? It's not only the culmination of that narrative. I think it's intentionally the culmination of the book of Genesis. He says, you guys intended to harm me, but my father, my God, intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, Joseph knew in God's sovereign way, he was disciplining him. God was fathering Joseph and discipling Joseph through all the hardships of the world the entire time in order to bring his grace into the world, in order to bring his grace into Joseph's life. And same is, same is true for you. Your heavenly father is always watching, always disciplining, always parenting. He's in control. And that, all that means that you have to do moving forward, here's all you got to do. Forgive your parents. Forgive your kids. Forgive yourselves. And praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a perfect brother who reconciled us to our heavenly Father. Please help us now be wise parents to the glory of your name. And in your name we pray, amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.